Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see a good, healthy turnout here for the subject of Calvinism. You may have loved ones who, uh, who believe in this subject, and sometimes one of the reasons why we have an evening like this and from time to time talk about this subject is that it can be very divisive. It probably is the most divisive topic today uh, among evangelical Christians. I cannot think of a more divisive. I know the subject has heated passions, and I know that fathers and sons do not talk with each other. I know, I know it is a heartbreaking situation for many, many people. I, um, I know of a situation, I just came back from Wisconsin about three weeks ago, where a father and a son are divided they don't hardly talk to each other, and it's a very, very difficult thing because of Calvinism. And you think, what Bible, what Bible topic should ever do that in families? How, how could that ever happen? It should be uniting and bringing together and creating love and harmony, but it does divide. And uh, it has since the beginning divided. And we're not going to go through all the history and so forth, but we want to look tonight at one session, I mean one, one subject, and that is, does God want all men and women to want all to be saved? And so we want to look at that tonight. Let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we pray that you will give us wisdom, give us clarity, give us help. May we be loving and caring but truthful as we look at this important subject. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I turned on here? I don't think I am. Okay. Well, let's take our Bibles out and look at a couple of verses about this subject. First of all, let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and, um, and verse 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 2 verses 3 and 4. It says, therefore, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Notice the next verse. Who will have all men, it's a generic, all men and women, young people, all those who have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, or men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Let's turn also over to Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3 and verse 9. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come repentance. There are two uh, Greek words, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but there are two Greek words for willing, or sometimes translated desire. There's one that is less strong, but very strong, and that is what we read in First Timothy. But there's a stronger word, and that's the word that's used here, bulima. It's used here, and that is a very strong form of the word will, and here he says, using that not is long-suffering, not willing, strong, passionate, not willing that any should perish. One other text, and that's over in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 14. Beautiful verse, Matthew 18, 14. Probably once a year, maybe we don't do it that often, but once a year we should preach or we should have a message on this chapter, verses 1 through 14 of Matthew 18, which is about children and how the Lord wants all children to come to himself. In the context of children, he says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. And the context here is children. And the verse after that, verse 12, how you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not seek out, leave the ninety and nine and seek that one that is astray, all in context of children, young people. And then it says in verse 14, speaking of little children, even so it is not the will of your father. Again, that will is the strongest form of the word will 
even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So we see children the Lord does not want to perish. We see people the Lord doesn't want them to perish. We see all men the Lord doesn't want them to perish. He wants the ungodly to come to himself, Romans chapter 5. And so we want to look at this subject. Does God want all men to be saved? Yes, a resounding yes. But we want to look at some scriptures. A Calvinist point of view would say God elects certain men. God predestinates certain men and women, and only those will be saved, only those God will show his saving grace to, only those did he die on the cross for, only those elect ones will be in heaven one day. All the others, no matter how they feel, no matter if they want to get saved, they cannot get saved because God has not elected them. And um, it said in the earlier passage we read in First Timothy, where it said that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is a ransom for all. It's a payment price for sins for all. Uh, we read earlier this morning uh, that God the Father did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. Over and over again we read the all, the Lord Jesus Christ died for the all. He died for the ungodly, died for Israel, died for the church, died for all men. And so we see some of those things. Well, let's think about this subject a little bit. We're going to do a sweeping, but a hopefully clear. And um, if you have questions, certainly see me afterwards. I have some books in the back on the subject. If you're interested in those, you can see me. Sage Spurgeon said, was once asked, how do you reconcile? Now, Sage Spurgeon was a moderate Calvinist. Sometimes Calvinists will use him in quotations, but he is a moderate Calvinist. But here's what he says. They asked him one night after a meeting, how do you reconcile election with free will? And he replied, I never try to reconcile good friends. But then he said this. People said, you're inconsistent. You say at one, at one sermon there's your election, and another sermon you say there's free will. You're inconsistent. How do you reconcile that? And he said, I would rather be 1,000 times inconsistent with Mr. Spurgeon than to be one time inconsistent with Scripture. So we hope tonight we'll be consistent with Scripture and faithful to Scripture and honest with Scripture. And we'll look at many Scriptures and many of what we would call Calvinist Scriptures, texts that might, in their point of view, support their ideas about election. And so we... So who was John Calvin? If you were to get $1,000 to answer that question, what would you say? Who is John Calvin? We talk about Calvinism, predestination, and all of those things. He was born in 1509, died in 1564, and uh, he was born in Paris. He got saved seeing a Protestant burned at the stake in Paris. And he, he thought to himself, a man who believed this sincerely about the Lord Jesus Christ there must be something to the reality of his faith. He began to read the scriptures. He got saved. Some people asked me, is John Calvin saved? I don't know. I wasn't there. I never met him. I don't know. God knows whether he's saved or not. But he made a profession of salvation. At that point, he authored what is called the Institutes of Christian Religion. He authored it at 27 years old. And it is a quite a, vol a, quite a volume of theology. Uh, his writings inspired the five points of Calvinism. Um, if you were to go up to John Calvin, if you go back in time and go see him and shake his hand and say, I'll give you $1,000 if you tell me what the five points of Calvinism is, he could not answer that question. He would miss out on the $1,000 because it wasn't formulated until probably 50 years after he died. Some people would even say that he didn't believe in limited atonement. Later on, his more uh, stringent followers uh, brought that into his teaching. But what are some of the things connected with Calvinism? What are the, some of the things? It's just not what we're looking at tonight. It's many things. Um, predestination. Infant baptism. I believe that if, you're baptized, if you would baptize a baby um, very early in their, when they're very young, that they will come into a sphere of blessing and God 
will almost certainly see that they become elect and are saved. Covenant theology, which is the idea is the church started in Genesis 12 with Abraham. There is no rapture of the church. There is no literal 1,000-year kingdom. And that the kingdom age began uh, at the resurrection of Christ. Um, And so very different covenant theology. A sovereignty of God in such a way that everything that comes to pass, God has ordained. So if Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they did sin in the Garden of Eden, that that was something that God sovereignly ordained and decreed that should come to pass. Every sin that takes place, every event in the world, positive and negative, God is the author of that event. When Satan desired to bring tempt and bring sin into this world, that is an event that God had ordained and planned from before the foundation of the world. Every sin today, every murder, every wrong act, every terrible event and tragedy that takes place today, God is in control. And their idea is nothing comes to pass except that God has ordained it. And I would say that's not true. God is in control, but there is a free will that we have. And he allows what I would call permissive will. We see that all over scripture. A permissive will and a, and a decreed will. And not all that comes to pass can we say that God is the author of that. Turn with me just for a moment to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 16, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. What do we read about sin coming into the world? Did God decree it? We read in Romans 5:12, by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. That was Adam. God was not the one who was the responsible agent, but Adam was. What do we read in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16? All that is in the world... Let's see, let me find it here. All that is in the world, all that is in the, uh, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, this is this, from this source comes all sin in the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, it's not of the Father, but is of the world. So all this, these sins, all of these events that draw men to sin, It is not of the Father. It says also in James, God is not, the Lord Jesus does not tempt anyone to sin. But that that temptation comes from uh, the old nature within him. So I would reject that view of the sovereignty of God that somehow all that comes to pass uh, is ordained and decreed by God. Election to salvation, we'll look at that tonight. An allegorical interpretation of Scripture applying uh, some of the passages of Israel in the Old Testament to the church, and the tulip doctrines. What are the tulip doctrines? Um, You can see the T-U-L-I-P, and that's an idea because it was formulated in Holland, I think, and they saw the tulip, and they thought this is what we'll call it. Tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, Limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. We don't really have time to go through all of those. Maybe some other time we'll look at some of the other ideas. But we'll look tonight at unconditional election. Here is um, a statement by Lorraine Bootner, who wrote a very well-received and probably a standard text uh, textbook for Calvinists, and he says this, the Bible contains an abundance of material for the development of the doctrines of the tulip. Furthermore, these doctrines are not isolated or independent doctrines, but are so interrelated that they form a simple, harmonious, self-consistent system. Prove any one of them false, and the whole system must be abandoned. Prove any one of them false, and the whole system must be abandoned. So a number of these that are very weak, I would say, and uh, do not have a lot of scriptural reference. Um, This one is very weak. Irresistible grace is the idea that God, 
that regenerates us before salvation, regenerates us, makes us alive by the Holy Spirit before we place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would argue there's not a verse in the Bible that teaches that. You could spiritualize verses. You could take verses about Israel. I will give them, take out their stony heart and give them the heart of flesh. But that is not about the New Testament, the believer. It's about Israel and what God will do in the millennial period. Very weak, irresistible grace, limited atonement, extremely weak. In fact, many Calvinists will say, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm only a four-point Calvinist. Many will reject limited atonement. And I would say total depravity, in their viewpoint, is also very weak. So, our friend um, Lorraine Bootner proved any one of them false and the whole system must be abandoned. Well, let's think a little bit about this subject. I want to say four things to, to start with. These are th- this, this is th- four principles we in our assembly in, in, in Land Lakes, we want I'm sure as much as this assembly does, we want to avoid any issue and problem now or in the future concerning Calvinism. We don't want it to divide a family or a brother and sister or two brothers or two sisters ever. We don't want that ever to happen. We don't want people to talk about Calvinism uh, Calvinism very much or send emails about Calvinism. But when we do talk about it, when it does come up, these four things we must undeniably, unmovably, we will never budge on these four things. And if we believe these four things and teach these four things, and we see an abundance of scripture for these four things, Calvinism will never find an inroad, I think, in our local assembly. What are the four things? First of all, we should teach all men have a free will. All men have a free will. And can place faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation. Now that is all through the New Testament. We must undeniably teach that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes on him, not the elect, whosoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There are many, many, many whosoever's all through the New Testament, all through scripture. And we must believe that all men have a free will and can place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Number one. Number two, God loves all man, all mankind, and wants all men and women to come to faith in the Lord Jesus. He loves all. Some Calvinists, and there are moderate Calvinists and those who are not so extreme, some Calvinists will say God does not love all men. And I think we should reject that. God loves all men. We see it in Scripture clearly. Clearly. God demonstrated his love while we were yet sinners that Christ died for the ungodly. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord laid the iniquity, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Loved us. We see that the first part of that verse was those who were turning their back. It was those who were going astray. And he laid their sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross for all, and all believers are eternally secure, can never lose their salvation, and they have a present assurance of salvation and a future eternal security. Now you may say, why do you have so many sentences in this last, this last little thing here? You've got a lot of sentences. You've got one sentence here. You've got four here. Why are you doing that? I want to say this. Now, many people will say Calvinists believe in eternal security. Calvinists believe in the perseverance of the saints. Calvinists will believe that, but that is not true. That is not truly, that is not exactly true. They believe this. If you say to a Calvinist, most of them, can a believer know now, now, after he places his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is saved. They will say no. You cannot have, what I put in here, present assurance of salvation. They don't believe 
in the same way as we would believe John, 1 John 5.13, where it says there that these things write unto you that you may know you have eternal life. These things I write unto you now, to those readers of that epistle, that you may know now you have eternal life. They would say no one can know now. It touches very much on, on Roman Catholicism. They can't know now. But if you are a true believer, when you die, you'll have the security that you won't go to hell. But you can't know now. It's a terrible thing to tell someone, I think, that you can't know now if you're saved. Someone comes to you and says, can you tell me if I have eternal security? Can you tell me that I'm going to go to heaven? No, I can't tell you now. But it says, he that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. I can't know now. So it's an important distinction that we should tell people they can know now that they are saved. And when they die, they have eternal security. Some verses of Scripture that support all of these four things that we've just been talking about. Whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Turn with me for a moment to John 3.16. I'm sure you've seen this before, but I just want to show it to you again. If I was to ask you, what does John 3.15 say? What does John 3.15 say? I love what John 3.15 says. We all know what John 3.16 says. Well, if you know what John 3.16 says, you know what John 3.15 says. It says this, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You say, why does he say that? The very next verse it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Same words. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but of everlasting life. Twice. You would say, is scripture overly repetitive? Why does it say it twice? Well, I think the reason it says it twice, it's God's highlight marker to say this is an important, important, important truth. That whosoever believeth on him, verse 15, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but of everlasting life. John 3.16, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, Acts 2.21, shall be saved. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever believes, Acts 10.43, whosoever believes in him shall, not, shall receive the remission of sins. We read 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should come. God, our Savior, will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. This is about the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for all men. He made atonement. He made provision for the salvation on the cross of the Lord Jesus on the cross made provision for the salvation of all men. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Romans 5, 6, when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 5, 8, God demonstrated his love towards us. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 10, 28, I've given them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. We come to John 6.37. Let me ask you to turn to that passage, John 6.37. Now, John 6.37 is considered by some, and many Calvinists, to be the irrefutable text in support of Calvinism. Undeniably, Calvinists will come and maybe go to this text all the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. If I had more time, I could read or have quotations of many Calvinists who would say, this is the way to interpret this text in this way. All the Father gives me are the elect from the foundation of the world. The Father gives me the elect. 
They're not believers. He gives me the elect. And when he gives the elect to me, not as believers, they will come to me. They will become believers. And he that comes to me will no wise cast down. Now, is that the true interpretation and meaning of this verse? How would you interpret it? How would you refute that? I want to suggest now that's not the interpretation of this verse. And I want to suggest now that leading Calvinists will also say that that is not the interpretation of this verse. I have, um, I have a chapter in my book back there. Um, there's a new uh, version of limiting omnipotence of which Malcolm Skelton wrote a recommendation um, but in there I have a chapter on this verse. This verse, I don't know how many pages, 10 pages on this verse alone. A couple of truths about John 6.37. I think undeniable truths of John 6.37. First of all, I would suggest all those given by the Father to Christ are believers. Not elect persons, in a sense, that are not yet saved. I want to suggest, I want to say this, there is no such thing as an elect person who is not saved. All those who the Bible will teach are elect are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have faith. They believe. They have their sins forgiven. No such thing. You'll never find anyone who's elect ever mentioned that is not saved. You find someone in the Bible who's described in that way, you let me know what verse it is, but I have not found a verse that speaks about anyone who's elect. Everyone who's saved in this room, I can, if you're saved, you're elect. We could go around, like John did in 3 John, to the elect lady, we'd go around and say to the ones here, you're elect. Elect elder, elect believer, elect John, elect whatever your name is. Those who are saved are elect. Number two, these believers have been called and taught and drawn by the Father to himself. Remember what, what, um, what Peter says to uh, the Lord Jesus on, uh, in Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. He says, who do men say that I am? And he says, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say another prophet. Who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does he say next? He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The father is drawing. The father is bringing. The father is teaching. Look in this passage at verse 45 in chapter 6. Verse 45 of chapter 6. It is written in the prophets that they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that is heard and learned of the Father comes to me. The Father was drawing. The Father was teaching. It says in verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father draw him. We believe that. Absolutely. No one can come to the Father. No one can come unless the Father and the Spirit of God draw him, and the word of God brings faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, John 6, 8, I think it is, when the Holy Spirit shall come, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment of sin, because they don't believe on me. No one comes to the Father by himself. He must be drawn. There's nothing, nothing good in us. There's nothing in us that would, no man, we read in John and Romans 3, there's none, there's none that are good, no, not one. There's none that seeketh him. There's none that understandeth him. Within our fallen nature, we would not seek after God. But God seeks after us and draws him to us and teaches. The Father teaches, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, the Word of God, all of that works in our lives. We come, become saved we are then given to the Lord Jesus. First, uh, the third point, these believers will follow Christ, be taught by Christ, and believe that he is the Messiah. These believers are eternally secure 
will never lose their salvation. I want to say, as we go back to this verse, it is a theological impossibility to say someone is in Christ, someone has eternal security, and is not a believer. All the Father gives me are elect that haven't come to Christ yet, and I will in no wise cast them out. They have to be believers. Look with me for a minute in John 17. John 17. These given ones, said before, these given ones are believers. How do we know that? I think we know it from John 17, verse 6. Verse 5 says in John 17, I have manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gave me out of the world. Look what it says. Look what it says. Thine they were, possession of the Father. Thine they were, and you gave them to me. They're already, I would suggest they're already saved. Thine they were. They were already a possession of the Father. Drawn by him, taught of him, believing in him. I would suggest also believing in Christ the Messiah. Come to faith in him. Why did he give them to the Lord Jesus? I gave them to the Lord Jesus that they would receive the word of God. But also he gave them to the Lord Jesus for shepherd's care. Shepherd's care. Look what he says down in verse 11. Now I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father. Now he says, I'm going back to thee. Now I'm going to turn them back over to the Father for shepherd's care and keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Shepherd's care, teaching them the word of God. Truths found in 637. Now, they are believers, and then they are given to the Lord Jesus Christ to be in Christ. They have eternal security. They are taught of the Lord Jesus. They are cared by as a shepherd by the Lord Jesus. No person can be considered in Christ except they are believers. No person can have eternal security except one who believes in the Lord Jesus. No person can be saved except the Father draw him, teach him, Reveal Christ to him. Now, R.C. Sproul Sr., probably the most leading and most influential Calvinist alive today. How does he interpret this passage? Notice what he says on John 6.37. This qualifies his statement about what the Father has given him that should never be lost. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Are they believers or are they elect ones who have not yet come to Christ? Well, he says this, it is believers that are given to Christ by the Father. And these believers will never be lost. This affirmation builds on what Jesus declared only moments earlier. So, this is a text we should not be afraid of. I have no problem, I'm sure you don't have a problem with saying... Believers are given by the Father to the Lord Jesus, and they will no wise be cast out. It really has nothing whatsoever to do with election or Calvinism or predestination at all. Believers are given to the Lord Jesus. They come to faith. They're believers in the Father, believers in the Lord Jesus. F.F. Bruce, also a Calvinist, no believer needs fear of being overlooked among the multitude of his or her companions in the faith. The whole community of believers as a whole and each member of the community having been given by the Father to the Son will be safely kept by the Son till the resurrection of life at the last day. F.F. Bruce died in about 1983. He had a great scholar. He says it's believers that are given to the Lord Jesus. R.C. Sproul, believers that are given to the Lord Jesus. So, in the next 15 minutes... We're going to explain the entire doctrine of predestination and election. Maybe. We'll see. See if that clock goes faster than it should go.
Okay. The word chosen or elect, same Greek word, underlying Greek word, eklogamai, used 28 times in the New Testament. Alternative words similar to may be used up to 40 times. It's used of Christ as elect, used of angels that are elect, used of Israel as elect, used of the church as elect, used as disciples as elect. In John 15, 16, he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, that you may go forth and bring, go forth and bring, uh, bring forth fruit. James. Turn with me to James 2.5. This is rarely quoted by Calvinists because it doesn't fit into their, um, their idea about election. But look at James 2.5 for a second. James 2.5. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Are only the poor elect? No, of course not. But that's what it says. God hath not chosen the poor of this. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? Well, no. The Calvinists would say there is no pre, there is no uh, condition. It's unconditional election. Nothing that God sees in anyone, but he elects them because he elects them in an arbitrary fashion. But it says here he's elected the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Now we know it's not referring truly to that idea, but those who are poor, those throughout the world that live in humble circumstances, so often when they come to faith, they have a richness of faith that others do not have. And I think that's the idea in that verse. This term has the same meaning in the Old Testament as the New Testament. In this term, in most cases, refers to believers or one chosen for special service. Now, let's look at this a little bit. Um, election is the sovereign choosing by God before the foundation of the world of those who are in Christ to receive spiritual blessings or a call to divine work. These high spiritual blessings were purposed by God from, the found, from eternity past uh, for those who were elect in Christ. Now, Harry Ironside. You cannot go wrong by reading anything by Harry Ironside. And uh, he says this, There are two things that are absolutely clear in Scripture. One is that God, by his foreknowledge, has predestined all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be conformed to the image of his Son. Predestination is never to heaven or to hell but always to special privilege in and with Christ. All who believe in him, this is, I think, the definition of election. All who believe in him were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Sir Robert Anderson, I believe at one time the director of Scotland Yard, and it's said that he searched for Jack the Ripper. But he was a good Bible scholar, a good Bible teacher, wrote at least seven or eight books on Bible subjects. First, the scriptural expression, God's elect, is a title of dignity and privilege applicable exclusively to the Christian. Secondly, the prominent thought is rank or privilege and not from salvation, from judgment or sin. Elect angels. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Now, did the elect angels, those who did not fall, did not rebel, did they need to be saved? No. They never sinned. They never were disobedient. The idea when it is speaking of an elect angel, it is someone who has a special relationship to God. It is said some of these elect angels were in the presence of the Lord forever. Never fell didn't need to be saved. But they had a mission. God used them for special service. And they had a special dignity and a special relationship with him. Israel, I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, make thy name great. Thou art a holy people unto the Lord God, 
The Lord has chosen thee to be a peculiar people or special people unto him above all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Israel's called elect more often by far than anyone in the New Testament. Was everyone in Israel saved? Absolutely not. In fact, a large majority were destroyed or killed whilst their lives in the wilderness. Absolutely not. has nothing to do with election uh, to salvation, but a special relationship and a mission that God gave them in the world. Elect Christ, did the Lord Jesus Christ need to be saved? No. But he's called elect. Behold my servant whom I uphold, Isaiah 42.1, my elect whom my soul delighteth. I want to suggest that when we read the word elect, it has a similar meaning all through Scripture. All through Scripture. And it is the idea of special relationship, a special love, and a role of service. Of course, the Lord Jesus had a special role of service here in the world. Elect church, you are a chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation. They were saved already, of course. Special relationship and also special service. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Elect persons never used of unsaved people. Election is a blessing for believers once they have been saved. Elect persons possess faith. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1.4. 1 Thessalonians 1.4. My father, um, my father was a very strong Calvinist. He was a, I would consider probably one of the strongest Calvinists I ever met. And um, wrote my book. He didn't really like my book very much. And he read it, but he didn't like it. <laughs> Had a few comments about it. Didn't like it very much. But I remember when I was a boy. We had a Thursday night Bible study in our home every Thursday night. It could have been Christmas, but we had that Bible study on Thursday night. Fourth of July, doesn't matter where we were, what we were doing. We always had a Thursday night Bible study, and many, many got saved. But one Bible study, I don't really remember the context. Maybe we were speaking about Calvinistic topics, but he turned to my mother. Mother raised on the mission field by Baptist missionaries in Cuba. safe as a teenager, lived a godly life as far as I can ever remember and know. Very faithful. There's a park of the palms today. If you go up there, you'll meet her. But he turned to her and he said this. He said, I don't even know if my wife, Grace, if she is elect, if she is truly one of the elect and saved. You imagine that. That's what he said. And if you had asked a Calvinist today to come into this room and point out all the elect people in this room, go ahead, go up this row, go over here, cannot do it, can't do it. They don't know. They don't know who the elect are. But Paul knew who the elect were. And the writers of Scripture all knew who the elect were. Why is that? Because they were believers. They were believers. Look what it says here in this passage, 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Now, Paul writes to them in verse 3, remembering that without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Well, they had all the marks of being saved, right? Then he says this, something that I haven't met a Calvinist yet. They don't even know sometimes if they're elect. But it says here, knowing brethren, brothers and sisters, knowing brethren beloved your election of God. How did he know that? Well, they were saved, came to faith in the Lord Jesus, and they had all these wonderful, beautiful marks of salvation. How do we become elect? We become elect by salvation. Not a mystery, not a great mystery. We become elect through salvation. So I can go up to each one of you, whatever your name is, and I can say, elect Malcolm. Next Sunday you come in and say, 
Elect Malcolm. How are you doing? We can do that. Honestly. Elect sister. We read in Romans 16, elect Rufus. Number of people were called elect all through Scripture. Why and how could he do that? Did he have some special revelation? No, I don't think so. Turn with me over to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Election is not some mystery where certain ones are elect and one day they're going to be saved. And, um, and it, before the foundation of world, uh, God has chosen some to be saved and some to be lost. I think that's the most foreign thing from Scripture. We haven't read that. I haven't read that. Never read anyone who's been elect to be lost or to be saved. We never read that. Predestination is only used three times in the Bible and has nothing to do election to the adoption of sons, elect, I'm sorry, predestinated to be conformed to the, to the image of Christ and elect, to, I'm sorry, and to be predestinated to the adoption of sons. Nothing to do about elect before the foundation of the world to be saved. But those who are saved have these special blessings. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Titus. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. All God's elect have faith. Have faith. Some of the marks of holiness, their predestination unto the, the uh, adoption of children, conformity to Christ, faith. Now let's turn to Matthew 20. I think we'll close with this. There's a little bit more, but we'll just close with this. Matthew 20. Now, the last verse of this parable, Matthew 20, verse 16. And we read this, I think, three times in Scripture. The last shall be first, and the first last. Many are called, few are chosen. Now, who are the chosen? Who are the chosen? Who are the elect? Same Greek word, underlying Greek word, whether it's elect or chosen. Who are they? Well, let's just look through this parable. Here's what it says. There was a householder who had a vineyard, and he sought for laborers. So he went out where day laborers were gathering, and he agreed, he agreed in verse 2, with the laborers for one denarius, denarius a day, and sent them into his vineyard. Time went by, third hour. The day would begin at 6 o'clock. That's the first hour of the day. 9 o'clock, the third hour. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He called to them. He says, I'll give you whatever is right. Go and work in my vineyard. Some went, but not all went. Later on, it was the ninth hour, sixth hour, and the ninth hour. He did the same. Called out to them to work in his vineyard. Some went and some did not go. His evening. Called the laborers of hire from the beginning to the last, the, the last to the first, and they came. And he agreed with them. Every man received a denarius. Some were unhappy because they worked from the beginning of the day, and others who worked later in the day still agreed with a denarius. But then he goes on to say, so the, first shall be, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Many are called, few are chosen. Who are the called? From this parable and a similar parable in chapter 22 of Matthew. And it ends in the same way. First shall be, the, the last shall be first, first shall be last. Chapter 22 and verse 16. Same way, many are called, you are chosen. Who are the called? The called are the ones who are invited to work in the vineyard. Who are the chosen? Chosen are the ones who respond to the call. Not all responded. And the implication is the general call of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel goes out to all men. Those who respond to the call 
are chosen. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are chosen. Now, I'm going to close with a quotation from William MacDonald. Many are called, but few are chosen. What does William MacDonald say? Many are called as the gospel invitation goes out to many, but few are chosen. Some refuse the invitation. And even those who respond favorably, some are exposed as false professors. The expression, the expression few are chosen does not mean that God is arbitrarily is arbitrary in selecting only a few for salvation. Here we have Bill McDonald. He is rejecting, in a few words, election to salvation. Does not mean God is arbitrary in selecting only a few for salvation. All who respond to the good news are chosen. Only way a person can tell if he is chosen is by what he does with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's biblical, it's true, it's faithful. It goes and it fits all of Scripture in the New Testament. And so I want to suggest that that is the New Testament teaching on election and predestination. Well, we're going to close there. You may have many questions. Undoubtedly, you may have a few questions. So um, see me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about whatever questions you may have on the subject. Let's close in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you that the gospel call goes out to all the world. And that we're a part of that, Father. We have the responsibility to go out and bring the message of salvation to a lost world. And when a person responds, he becomes chosen, becomes elect, becomes in a special relationship, a special relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. And Father, we thank you for this truth. May we not shy away from it. May we be very, uh, may it strike us in such a beautiful way that we are indeed chosen of God. And so we pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.